Hey everyone, welcome to Pop Culture Pastor, where we look at movies, music, comics, and more from the perspective of faith. Welcome to the show. This is your self-proclaimed pop culture pastor, Chris Perry. At this point, it's just me. And so to quote the, one of the people that we're going to be talking about today. Fine. I'll do it myself. Uh, so today we're talking about the flood story in the book of Genesis. And we're talking about the Marvel movie Infinity War and its main villain, Thanos. And I'm just going to start off this episode with kind of a hot take that God's flood is worse than Thanos' snap, right? Because in, in Genesis, it is every living thing minus you know, two of every animal and the eight humans who get on the ark. Whereas when Thanos kills a bunch of people, he only wipes out half of sentient life. So, you know, just, just by numbers, Thanos really doesn't seem quite as bad as, as God. So... Is Old Testament God a bigger supervillain than Thanos? Is he worse than this fictional comic book character? So we're going to compare the nature of these stories, and we're going to talk about the purpose of the judgments that they both give, the purpose of the destruction that they both bring. Now, like I said, at this point, it's just me, but I'm going to have a special guest segment later on in the episode. I'm really excited for you all to hear. I'm going to be joined by Dr. Janet Kellogg-Ray, uh, she's an author and uh, scientist and professor who's going to talk some about the flood story and science and maybe even a little of uh, the science of what Thanos does in Infinity War. Well, that's where we're going to start today. We're going to talk about Thanos, the Marvel Cinematic Universe, if you're one of the few that has not uh, seen all 20-something, 30-something at this point movies in this series. So in the first several phases of the Marvel Cinematic Universe, Thanos was kind of the, the big bad guy that everything was moving toward. He's this powerful, you could probably argue godlike being, who's obsessed with death. Now, in the comics, he was created back in 1973 by Jim Starlin, uh, and you get a lot more of his origin story there. He is an eternal Who's Gone Wrong, if uh, you saw that Eternals movie, I know it was probably one of the least loved of the MCU, although I thought it was fairly interesting, he's actually connected to that story. And uh, if, if that is something you're interested in, I would recommend the current run of Eternals, uh, written by Kieran Gillen. He's a, a great writer, and Thanos is a, a major player in that story in the, in the second volume there. Now, in the cinematic universe... Thanos' origins never really got explained, at least not so far. Now, we did get a clue. If you saw Eternals and you stayed for the post credit scene, Harry Styles showed up, which uh, was probably good casting if they want to try and get people interested in the Eternals next time more. Uh, he shows up as a character named Star Fox, who's actually the brother of Thanos, and so that's setting up some of those connections. So we'll see if they pull in any of his, his backstory, his history there. Now, in the comics and in the MCU, uh, he has this plan to wipe out half of all sentient life. And in the movie, Infinity War, the main one that he is the antagonist in, he talks about balance as the reason for wanting to do this seemingly terrible thing. Right? We're going to talk in a minute about 
his motivation and why he doesn't think this is actually bad. He thinks this is helpful. But the, the way that he goes about doing this is to collect these infinity stones. So, again, these are things that were set up through most of the early Marvel movies, these six stones that you know, are connected to you know, the beginning of all reality. If you collect all six, you basically have godlike power. Let's hear a little bit of Thanos talking to Doctor Strange about the power he's seeking and what he plans to do with it. With all six stones, I could simply snap my fingers. They would all cease to exist, and I call that mercy. And then what? I finally rest and watch the sunrise on a grateful universe. Again, we haven't talked about his motivation, but already you can kind of guess that when someone is on this quest for absolute power, it usually doesn't go too well. Regardless of what their goal is, absolute power tends to corrupt. And so it's, it's not too hard to see why he's a villain. He seems to have no regret for the terrible things that he does. He, he kills a lot of people along the way and has done so for, for many years, it seems. When we meet him, he has no real compassion for anyone else, at least not in, in any small scale. We see specifically the way that he treats his adopted daughters, Gamora and Nebula, uh, he shows favoritism to Gamora and kind of tortures his other daughter, Nebula. Although, you know, we haven't gotten to God yet, but you could argue that Old Testament God also shows a bit of favoritism, right? We all know the Jacob and Esau story. Uh, now, another problem with Thanos is the, the people that he surrounds himself with. You see his, his minions, they're called the Black Order, which <laughs> that right there probably tells you these are not nice guys. Uh, they're also violent and cruel, and so someone who is using people like that tends to be more villainous than heroic. And he seems to actually enjoy a lot of the violence that, that he does. It especially gets personal with the Avengers over the course of Infinity War and Endgame. He, he constantly says that it's not, but it seems like there's more going on there. right? In Endgame, the sequel to Infinity War, he even says, right, all of this and then Where'd you end up? You come back to me. Like, Well, actually, Thanos, you're the one that traveled through time in order to fight these guys again. So maybe you're the one that, that can't give up on, on this fight here. Ultimately, his, his attitude is that the ends justify the means. And I would say that the more that you lean into that thinking, the more you're leaning towards villainy. That if you have some good goal in mind, but you're willing to use terrible methods to get there, that should be a clue that your motivations are not as pure as you think they are, right? So the means of universal genocide, um, even if it does achieve balance, that, that's probably a, a bad sign that, that you're probably on the villain side there. And as we'll talk about, especially in our science segment, his means of killing half of life may not even achieve the balance that he wants. Okay, so Thanos is clearly a villain, uh, what about God in Genesis? So I've been saying Old Testament God almost as if that's a separate character. And I, I do that not because I believe that, but I think that's the way that many people think about God in the Old Testament. Right? That's the way they imagine God. And for some people, that God does seem a bit villainous. You know, there's some, they may not say this clearly, but it, there's kind of this uh, deep-seated belief 
that eventually, well, God learns to love and God becomes a Christian by the time you get to the New Testament. Now, like I said, most people wouldn't say that clearly, but I think that idea sometimes gets into our heads. Now, some do say it clearly. There was an early Christian heresy known as Marcionism. This was uh, an early church leader who claimed that the God of the Old Testament was a, to- was a totally different God from uh, the God of Jesus. And he created things, but he was kind of evil, and now we have a new God through Christ, right? So that was declared heretical. Marcion was, was kicked out of the church for that. So is that what we believe? How are we going to understand Genesis? How is God depicted in this ancient book? Well, I think it's important, before we start getting into God's character, to remind ourselves that Genesis is an ancient Near Eastern book. And so, it has an ancient Near Eastern perspective on God. And that's going to affect the way that the people that were reading it, the people that were writing it, the way they think about who God is and how God operates. One way that I've heard it best described by the writer Pete Inns is that God lets the children tell the story. Now, this is something we'll come back to later on, but we're not debating whether this is inspired. We're defining what inspiration looks like and what Genesis is trying to tell us about God. So, who is this God that Genesis describes? Well, maybe the best starting place is to talk about God's name. In the Hebrew Bible, the name of God is Yahweh. Now, when you read that in your English Bibles, they're not going to translate that name. Instead, they insert the words, the Lord. And if you look closely, it'll be Lord with all capital letters. That goes back to a tradition of respecting the name of God and um, not pronouncing it out loud. So when Jewish Hebrew readers read their scriptures, they don't pronounce the name Yahweh. They say the Hebrew word for Lord, which is Adonai instead. But this is important for us to, to think about that, that God does have a name and is presented as such in Scripture. You know, if you go to Exodus 3, that's where you get this explained most clearly. God reveals this name to Moses. And whatever Yahweh means, it's somehow connected to the verb I am. Right? As God says there, I am who I am, which is kind of a non-answer, which I, I love the mystery there. I point that out just to help us understand that God is actually a title. It's not a name. A good analogy for this is it's like dad, right? To my children, my name is dad, right? That's what they call me. And in fact, it would be a little disrespectful for them to to call me Chris. I wouldn't hate it, but you know, that's, that's kind of our assumption, right? That to refer to your parent by their own name is somehow disrespectful. And so even though my name to them is dad, that's not my actual name, and, and there are lots of dads. And so if we want to differentiate which dad, you have to use the person's name. And so in the ancient world, there were lots of gods. And it's helpful to think of Yahweh as one god among those. And so we can use the name of God, Yahweh, to differentiate here. Now, in, again, in their mindset, it, it was a later development, the idea that there was only one god. What we see through a lot of the Hebrew Bible is that there are lots of gods, but Yahweh is supreme. He is the one that is worthy of worship and not any other. Now, another feature that we see uh, of how Yahweh is described in Scripture, in the Hebrew Bible especially, is something called anthropomorphism. This is where you're 
attributing human traits to something that's not human. So, right, we know that God is spirit, God is not physical, God is wholly other than us, and so really the only way, the main way that we understand God or the divine nature is through metaphor, through analogy, right? So we use ideas like father or a rock or a shield to, to understand what God is like. Now, it's important that we don't over-literalize any one metaphor, but see, they're all trying to point to something about God's character, even though we can never fully grasp it. You know, it's hard for humans to relate to something or to someone without giving it you know, a personality. Right? Just think the way we do that for all sorts of animals or even like our houseplants. Right? We, we kind of assume they're like us so that we can relate to it. And so there's some sense in which that's always happening with God, but especially in particular ways in the Old Testament. Right? So, for example, God does not have a body, but Genesis will often use bodily language to understand Yahweh. Right? You go to the creation account in Genesis 2, Yahweh is forming humanity with his own hands. And then Yahweh walks in the garden with them. As we'll see later on in the flood story, God can smell sacrifices as if he has a nose. All right, now, I'm not pointing these things out to you know, make fun or you know, insinuate that these ancient people were stupid. I mean, we still talk this way, and I think this is actually a helpful way to understand God's work. Right? There's no other way than to use metaphor, but we need to recognize when they are metaphors. And I think we can question how metaphorical they, they thought it was at times. But this, this tendency of anthropomorphism, right, to give human traits to something non-human, we see that with God's body, but does this also extend to Yahweh's emotions? Does it extend to Yahweh's knowledge? I think this is a kind of open question we want, we want to be thinking about as we go through this conversation and, and the flood narrative. Now, in the ancient world, there were actually a lot of different stories about a, a huge flood. It's a common thing in the ancient Near East. We have multiple accounts from other sources of flood stories that in some ways are similar to Genesis and in some ways are different. It's as if this, this event exists in the cultural memory. And you make of that what you will of, in terms of how much it's historical. But... For me, the real question is more theological. Why would the gods destroy their creation with a flood? So a good example of this is found in something called the Epic of Gilgamesh, or the Atrahasis Epic. This is basically the same story, but in different cultures, and they, they change out the names of some of the gods or the main human character. And what we see in, in this version of the story is that the gods wipe out humans because we're just really noisy, right? And the gods can't get any sleep, so it's like, all right, we're done with them. Let's just wipe them out. And so they, they create this big storm, but then they immediately regret it because the storm is so scary. And there's one guy, his name's either Utnapishtim or Atrahasis. They build a boat and escape, and they take as many living things with them as possible. And at the end of the story, the gods regret uh, what they did when they smelled a nice sacrifice because, oh, if we kill all the humans, who's going to make sacrifices for us? And so I don't think it's a stretch to say that the, the gods in that story do not have a very good motivation 
right? They're just annoyed, and so that's why they're going to wipe everyone out. Their only real regret is that they're not going to get some of the benefits of having worshipers. Now, Genesis is most likely later than those accounts. And so I think we can read Genesis as kind of commenting on them. Right? In a sense, you can say Genesis is more progressive in the way that it thinks about God and why Yahweh, the God of the Hebrew people, would have done a massive flood like that. Now, before we get to Yahweh's motivation, we want to go back to our other character, Thanos, that we're really trying to compare with the God of Scripture. So, Thanos doesn't wipe out people with a flood, but why does the God like Thanos decide to wipe out half of sentient life? Well, in his view, it's because the populations of the universe are unsustainable. And so, because you know there's not enough, because there are too many hungry, starving people, he needs to kill half to bring balance. Right? Balance is the thing that he keeps coming back to, that somehow this will even the scales. If there are less people, less sentient life, then things can be more sustainable. So let's listen to a clip. He's in this scene talking to his adopted daughter, Gamora, and you can hear his kind of justification for this, why this is not evil, but, but this is necessary. Your planet was on the brink of collapse. I'm the one who stopped that. Do you know what's happened since then? The children born have known nothing but full bellies and clear skies. It's a paradise. Because you murdered half the planet. A small price to pay for salvation. You're insane. Little one, it's a simple calculus. This universe is finite, its resource is finite. If life is left unchecked, life will cease to exist. It needs correction. You don't know that! I'm the only one who knows that. At least I'm the only one with the will to act on it. So the question is, well, does he have a point? Is Thanos right? Now, there are people that would argue that. In fact, there's a subreddit called Thanos Did Nothing Wrong. That phrase kind of became a meme after the movie. Maybe that is the right solution to the problems that we're facing today. Now, some of that could be that, you know, Thanos is kind of a nihilist, and this seems to be a more nihilistic generation that, that has no hope, that thinks things are completely not sustainable, and so, you know, wiping out a bunch of people, eh, maybe that is, you know, just what it's going to take. I mean, you could argue that Thanos is an environmentalist. Right? He cares about things continuing in the long term. He cares about you know, life going on. It's just that the way that he does that is, <laughs> involves taking a lot of life. But this, this idea, you, know, you can even see in the movies, it's, it's wrestling with this a little bit. right? The best Marvel villains are the ones where there's an element to what they're doing that is understandable. They have a point. They just take it a little too far. And so this environmental idea, I mean, in Endgame, the movie that comes after Thanos has wiped out half of the people, uh, spoiler warning, I guess, if you haven't seen it yet, uh, Captain America mentions that you know the whales are back and the water in, in the river seems cleaner than it used to be. You know, it kind of reminds me of you know, during the pandemic, the lockdown, where we noticed, hey, there's, there's a lot less pollution now that people aren't driving their cars everywhere all the time. 
you could take all that as an argument for, okay, maybe, maybe it would be better for creation if there weren't so many of us around. But as I, as I said earlier, good ends like sustainability can't be achieved by evil means, by genocide. You know, a question I have is, instead of killing half the people, why not double the resources? Right? The problem is hunger, just make more food. Wouldn't that solve everything? Now, again, this is a question that we're going to talk about with our science guests in a minute. But I feel like Thanos maybe isn't thinking about all of the options. Right? If you have literally infinite power to do anything, is the only way that you can think of to address this problem to just kill trillions of people? You know, the irony in all of this is that Thanos' approach to sustainability is probably not sustainable over time. Even if you cut down half the populations, well, they're just going to keep growing again until you get to the same place, and what do you do then? So, as terrible as Thanos' plan is, it is him attempting to address a problem. So, in a similar way, what problem does Yahweh see in the book of Genesis that needs to be addressed? So, if you go to Genesis chapter 6, we see why God feels this way. Yahweh saw that the wickedness of humans was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And Yahweh was sorry that he made humans on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So Yahweh said, I will blot out from the earth the humans I have created, people together with animals and creeping things and birds of the air, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the sight of Yahweh. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted its ways upon the earth. You know, in Genesis we see that God constantly seems surprised by evil and the violence of humanity, right? That's this idea of being sorry or regret implies that God didn't think it was going to go that direction. Genesis presents a God who is not all-knowing, which is, you know, a commonly held belief, especially in classical theism about God. And I think we, this is one of these places where we have to ask, okay, is this anthropomorphism again, right? Humans don't know everything, and so they assume that God wouldn't either, that God would be surprised. But there are actually pretty robust theological ideas that would say, well, some things are unknowable, and so God can't know them, right? This is the idea of open theism, uh, that if the future is unknowable, then it's just something God can't know. And the idea that God is kind of working alongside creation no matter where we take it, God is going to continue to work, but God doesn't know everything that we're going to do because it hasn't happened yet. All right, now that's a bigger can of worms than we probably have time to get into. Now what we see, going back to Genesis, is the problem Yahweh recognizes is the evil inclination of the human heart. Specifically, the heart is oriented towards violence. Now there may be a bit of hyperbole. I don't know, maybe not. Sometimes it feels that way that all we do is to choose what hurts other people. You know, it just seems to be how the world works then and now, right? The, the violence is redemptive. Violence is the answer, the way to get what you want. And so, right, if violence is how you deal with problems and that's the problem in Genesis, well, then I guess that's what God is going to have to do too. But there's also this question here about Yahweh's solution for the problem that he sees would a creation-wide flood really solve the problem if the problem comes from the human heart? 
I mean, even if you choose one good guy in his family, who honestly does not come across very holy immediately after he leaves the ark, how is that going to be any different? Now, this is a question that I think is important, but I think that Scripture actually is going to address. I think it's also interesting, though, that God is grieved in this story. God is not just angry and wiping everything out in wrath, right? Like he's just throwing a tantrum. Uh, This idea of regret, uh, it's God changing his mind about this whole creation project, especially the human side of it. Now, the rest of the details of the story are are so well known, I don't think I need to go through all of it, right? God tells Noah to build this ark, which actually is more like a box than a boat. He takes two of every animal, it rains for 40 days. And I would say, though, that as well known as this story is, it's not a kid's story. I I think we tell it to kids because they get to see lots of animals, but it's it's a pretty dark story. God wiping out almost everything in all creation maybe isn't something that we should present to little children. But the the way this story is told, it really is the undoing of creation. So if you go to chapter 7, verse 11, it says, All the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. So this was showing some of the ancient cosmology. The way that ancient people thought about creation is not necessarily consistent with the way that it actually is. Right? If you go to Genesis 1, it's like there's this bowl over the earth, and that bowl is holding the waters up above us, and that's what the sky is. Right? You can understand why ancient people would think that way, even if we know that's not actually what the sky is. So in the story, though, in the logic of Genesis, the flood comes when God lets that water that's suspended above come back down. What's really happening here is that the earth is returning to the chaotic, watery state that it existed in in the very beginning. In the beginning, it was formless and void, It was just chaotic water. And so the flood is everything going back to that. And so it goes on to say that all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, domestic animals, wild animals, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all human beings. Everything on dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. Genesis mentions the animals first, probably because they're like collateral damage. It's not really their fault. It doesn't sound to me like uh, the animals are corrupt and violent. It's something humanity has done, and the rest of creation suffers for it. We also notice there in, in that reading that it describes people in a very impersonal way. I don't think we're meant to consider the individuals, to think about children and babies who would have died in this flood. That's not really the way the story is meant to function. Taking it in that way, so literally and so specifically, I think it hurts the narrative, and it definitely hurts God's character. Again, like I said, (laughs) the question we're kind of wrestling with is, well, you know, Thanos only kills half, but God kills all of them? Thanos wants sustainability, but God just seems to want a do-over. So when we're thinking about the motivation, there is something that I think we can hold on to here is, understandable is is still meaningful for us, that violence is a problem that God cares about and God is willing to address. And yet the solution that Yahweh comes up with, I think should trouble us. I think for so many of us, we're just familiar with this story that we don't really consider the ramifications for what it's saying about God's character. So that's a question that we're going to have to come back to and really think about 
what is this saying about God, especially in how the story ends and where it goes from there? But before we do that, now we're going to have our special guest segment. Well, now is a segment in our show where I want to invite in our, our very special guest, Dr. Janet Kellogg-Ray. Welcome to the show, Janet. Thanks. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, so uh, Janet is a professor at the University of North Texas in the Department of Biological Sciences. She has a PhD in curriculum and instruction from the University of North Texas. Uh, she also has, did some studies at ACU, so that's a little bit of our connection there. And she's also, uh, most relevant to our conversation today, the author of a book called Baby Dinosaurs on the Ark, The Bible and Modern Science, and the Trouble of Making It All Fit. So we're going to talk some about the flood and, and science and how we do or, or don't fit those together. But before we start getting into that subject, uh, one of the things I always like to do with my guests is get a little bit of your spiritual bio, uh, your, your upbringing in the church, uh, and a little bit you know where you're at now and uh, maybe how, in your case, your uh, love of science and love of the church uh, has, has been a part of your journey. So tell us a little bit about yourself, Janet. Well, I was uh, raised in uh, a, a, a very conservative restoration movement church, a very conservative wing of the restoration movement. And in my family, uh, we went to church three times a week, rain or shine. My mm -hmm. grandfather was a gospel preacher. And uh, probably the most scarring thing about that upbringing is that I never saw the Wizard of Oz until I was an adult. Wow. I never saw it. I, that's a pop culture reference. I couldn't join in on it. Well, because, you know, back in the before times, before there was uh, on demand or recordings of any kind, uh, anyone from my grade and a few grades behind me knows that the Wizard of Oz only broadcast once a year and it always broadcast on Sunday night. Ah. And so I never saw Wizard of Oz until I was in university and it was like a college movie night it was the first time I saw the Wizard of Oz. But in my church and in my home, uh, we would have no more questioned the literalness of the Bible in general, uh, the book of Genesis specifically, than we would have questioned the existence of Jesus. It really wasn't a big topic because it was just the default position. Yeah, taken for granted. Yeah. Right. You know, and as you know, I progressed on into, you know, young adulthood, teenage years, young adulthood, and I fell in love with science. Things just weren't always lining up with the way I had always uh, assumed things were by default. And so I tried to go through what I describe as just a lot of mental gymnastics, kind of like if I close one eye and squint, you know, can I make the fossil record match uh, the days of creation? And oh, there we go. Problem solved. And so I spent a lot of times just trying to force modern science into a literal reading of the Bible. And uh, as a as a young adult and, and for the last few decades, I've realized that that is not a way to honor either the scripture or to be um, authentic about the science. And so um, I'm still in an evangelical church. It's a church with uh, restorationist bones. Uh, I, you know, I like to say, do I agree 
with everything that's taught in my church? Absolutely not. <laughs> but I also have to say, I don't agree with myself from 10 years ago. And I definitely don't agree with myself from 20 years ago. And so, you know, it's, uh, you're all just, you know, kind of works in progress, figuring out, constructing, reconstructing what we need to do. And, uh, but I've got a, a dear, dear um, church group there. I, I have a, a book study that I've led for, oh, probably 10 years now. And it's kind of become, you know, my small group, my go-to people. It's where we work out all the hard questions with each other. And we are um, cross, uh, it's hard to say, cross-denominational, cross-congregational groups. So we mm -hmm. all kind of come from different, from different conservative backgrounds. Yeah. Here. Yeah. So yeah, having different conversation partners and being willing to just kind of ask some questions that I mean, I had some similar experiences. Of, you, you just don't ask certain things as a kid. No. You kind of maybe that was told directly. Maybe it wasn't. Of like, right. well, we're just gonna we're just gonna assume that this works. But I like what you said, and I think this is something that I've mentioned already as well. Of like, let's just let the Bible be what it is instead of right. determining it has to work this way and fit it into yes. that. Let's let it speak for itself and base what the our our understanding of what the Bible is. On that. Right. And 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 that is just as considering the Bible authoritative as anything else, because you're letting the Bible speak the way it was intended to be heard. Yeah, right. I think that's a high view of scripture. Some would say that that's that's a lower view, but no, respecting it for what it is is I think that's yeah, it's more respectful. Absolutely. Absolutely. I agree. Yeah. So you've already mentioned this a little bit, you know, the difficulty of reconciling you know, the literal creation account or the flood story, which is where we're focusing today, with the fossil record and other things in, in modern science. So tell me a little bit about your journey in, through that process of, of reconciling something like the flood story and science. What are some issues that we need to consider uh, as we're, we're wondering, okay, is it possible there was a literal worldwide flood or not? Well, you know, again, I would have to say that in order to force fit a literal worldwide flood into scientific evidence, we've got to uh, not handle both scripture and science respectfully. You know, I think we torture our scriptures. We torture our science in trying to force fit our uh, religious beliefs into modern scientific evidence. And we contort ourselves into lots of mental gymnastics. And, and here's my, my go-to metaphor for that. Those who advocate for a worldwide flood, a literal worldwide flood, uh, generally also advocate for uh, a young earth and special creation. And in order to advocate for both of these, you have to have dinosaurs living at the same time as humans. Mm -hmm. But the problem scientifically is, is that 65 million years pass in the fossil record between the last non-avian dinosaurs and the first appearance of humans in the fossil record. So we immediately, you know, have a problem there of, of, of how do we have humans and dinosaurs uh, coexisting at the same time? And so if humans and dinosaurs coexist at the same time, they by default have to have been put on Noah's Ark prior to the flood because they had to have been saved 
in order for humans and dinosaurs mm-hmm. to exist at this at the same time. So advocates for that position will say, well, you know, Noah didn't put every possible animal on the ark. Noah chose certain kinds, like the dog kind, the cat kind, the dinosaur kind, which, by the way, is not a biological term. That is not a term used in biology. Right. But I let's just yeah, go I don't with remember it. learning that in my no, eighth not grade kinds. So let's just go with kinds for now. So Ken Ham, who is the biggest face of uh, you know a literal a literal Genesis flood with his Ark encounter in, in Kentucky, will will estimate that there were fifty to sixty of the dinosaur kinds. So that means that at minimum 100 to 120 of some of the largest animals to ever live on the planet, you know, including the, the kind of dinosaurs we call the seropods, which were the largest land animals to ever live. So we've got to consider that. We have to consider uh, feeder animals for the carnivores, plus all the other animals in the world. And so pretty soon you have a big, big problem. Dinosaurs on the ark become a big, big problem. So uh, not to be not to be defeated, we contort ourselves and say, well, it must have been baby dinosaurs on the ark. Noah must have put these tiny little baby dinosaurs on the ark. And just like that, we have force fit modern science into a literal reading of the Bible. And so you know, I think that just became a, a metaphor for me. And I began to look at, you know, other ways in which um, we would force fit a literal reading there. But, you know, if you want to talk about more about, you know, the other issues, literal, there's there's many of them. You know, for example, advocates for a literal Genesis flood uh, use the flood as the go-to example for explaining the fossil record. So the explanation goes like this. Um, If there was a a worldwide flood that killed every living thing on the planet, what would we expect to see? Well, we would expect to see millions of dead things buried. And voila, that's exactly what we see in the fossil record. Therefore, we have scientific evidence for a literal Genesis worldwide flood. But there's a a, a few problems with that. And one of the problems you can see right now, or at least a few weeks ago on your nightly news and in your your news broadcast, as you were looking at the video footage following Hurricane Ian in Florida, we know what floods do. Hmm. We've seen uh, photographs. Some some people may have experienced the aftermath of Katrina. We know what flood damage looks like. It's a mishmash of of plants and animals and construction and, and everything is tumbled together and then just dumped chaotically as the waters recede. And that's not what we see in the fossil record. That's not what we see. We don't see an aftermath of of Katrina. And a Genesis worldwide flood would make Katrina look like a a spring rainstorm, (laughs) you know, with the the descriptions there, with continents being ripped apart and the, the waters of the deep coming up. You know, even as far back as the 18th century, at the birth of of paleontology, 
the earliest paleontologists recognized that there was a pattern in the fossil record. In fact, they would you know, play this game that they could predict what fossils would be found in a place where they were digging just by knowing the rock formation in which they were going to dig. And when we look at, if you look at the fossil records, like, like a panoramic uh, photograph of life on earth, you know, beginning with the oldest rocks and then progressing through time to newer rocks, you know, in the, in the oldest rocks where we find living things, we find living things, but we don't find anything with a head. And if you go further progress in time, you begin to find animals with heads. Continue to go further in time, you find animals with heads and backbones. Still uh, progressing further, you have animals with heads and backbones and limbs. And in the very newest layers of rock, you have animals with heads and backbones and limbs, and they walk on two legs and they have hair and they feed their young with milk. You know, what you don't find is animals that walk on two legs upright mixed throughout the fossil record. You don't find things with backbones in the layers where things don't have heads. There is a there is a predictable pattern, a predictable order to the fossil record. And if you compare that predictable pattern that we see, no matter where in the world you go, you see this, this predictable pattern of, of fossils, you understand that that's not what we would expect to see following a catastrophic flood. That's not how animals and plant life would be dumped at, out as the waters receded. So, you know, that's one problem. You know, others have said, well, you know, there's um, a, a, a sorting, a sorting explanation so that the so that the smartest and cleverest could run to high ground and leave, you know, all the dumb little turtles behind or, or whatever. Uh, but the problem with that explanation is that if humans were the cleverest and ran to high ground as Noah's flood begins began to rise higher and higher, you know, I would just say, well, were there no children? Were there no elderly? Mm. Were there no injured people that just didn't make it? But without fail, we only find human fossils in the very newest layers of rock. I like what you're saying that if you go, well, this is what we would expect to find. And that's what we find. Right? It's kind of right. like you're going to find what you're looking for. And so right. if you come to it, of, well, we have to take this story literally. And so we're going to make the science fit. Well, then you'll find that, but you're not being true to the science. And no. as we've already said, I don't think you're really respecting the Bible either. And I, mean, I remember growing up and hearing other explanations, right? Like the, the Leviathan and the Behemoth, those are dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. It kind of creates, I think for a lot of Christians, this you know, division in our minds. I remember as a kid, uh, I was in a Bible class and somebody, the teacher asked, when you think about the beginning, what do you what do you think about? And I said dinosaurs because you know, like most kids, I was into dinosaurs, and I could tell the teacher like started to feel nervous about that. And so I was like, oh, uh, I mean, the Garden of Eden, right? And so it's like <laughs> even as like a eight year old, I knew okay, there's the church answer, and there's the, the you know science class right. answer of right. what what happened in the beginning. And so I think what we're what we're talking about here is we don't have to keep those separate. Right, And we see the ways that some have tried to line them up, and it really does not line up if you're being intellectually honest. 
Right. Uh, but we can be intellectually honest and still uh, trust Scripture and, and understand who God is and what God has done, and also the way that God continues to work um, in right. creation. Right. Now, changing subjects a little bit, you know, we're also talking this episode about uh, the Marvel movies and Thanos and his plan where he snaps his fingers and wipes out half of sentient life across the universe as a way to make things more sustainable because, you know, there's too many mouths to feed. And, you know, just as, as I've talked about, the flood is an attempt to address the issue of human violence, but uh, maybe isn't going to address that uh, fully. Since you, you know, have a background in, in these sort of things, what would actually happen if half of all sentient life immediately disappeared? Would that make things more sustainable? Uh, what would that look like in the long term from a scientific perspective? Well, this isn't that it's not exactly my field of expertise, but I, I thought a lot about that 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 question, that topic. And and at first, I mean, I guess if you just if you define sentient life as life that is capable of feeling pain, emotion, that kind of thing, is that how you would define? I think, yeah, I mean, it's life? kind of unclear in the movies, even like obviously people are wiped out, but it seems like birds and other animals disappear as well. Well, the first thing that would come to my mind is, you know, just from a, a, a biological perspective, is that, you know, in the history of Earth, there have been five great, you know, dyings, five great mass extinctions. You know, the largest one was the in-Permian extinction, and about 96% of all species uh, disappeared. And that, and, you know, so that's a that's a lot of, of life disappearing. The most recent uh, mass extinction was at the end Cretaceous with uh, about 60, about 65 million years ago with the, the most famously the death of the dinosaurs mm -hmm. due to the asteroid and about 76% of all species disappeared at that particular um, extinction. But, you know, the, the problem biologically is let's just take the, the end Cretaceous extinction with 76, three fourths of life disappearing is that it took 300,000 years before plant life even rebounded. Mm. 300,000 years. And it was 700,000 years before we saw mammals that would, were larger than 100 pounds. You know, we started to see some tiny mammals around, you know, several hundred thousand years uh, later. But if you have a great dying off of a mass a proportion of your life, things aren't going to rebound, you know, immediately or even in a generation or decades or even centuries. You know, mm. we know historically it takes hundreds of thousands of years for life to rebound, you know, at that point, you know, and as far as, you know, how it would impact, you know, resources, resources as far as, um, sharing our resources across our planet with those that are uh, in resource deficit. You know, I, this may not necessarily be a science problem. It's really, in my opinion, much more of a, of a religious problem. Mm. And, you know, to ask ourselves, is it a problem of doubling our resources or is it to cause sustainability? Is it a problem of supply 
or is it a problem of distribution? Mm. You know, again, if you look on the evening news, you see right now in Ethiopia, uh, there's uh, mass starvation going on and food resources sitting idle because warlords won't let the food through. Or we see where uh, uh, where Ukrainian wheat is being blockaded and not being shipped to, to countries in Africa that need that wheat. And so, you know, you're getting into a problem there that's not a science problem. It's a human problem, how we use resources and food as a weapon of war. Hmm. And so... You know, I'm not so sure that wiping out a big chunk of the population is going to either solve our problem scientifically because you've got the problem of rebounding. And then you also have the problem of you could have all the resources in the world. But if humans use those resources as a weapon of war, you're still going to have need. Yeah, it's it's a heart problem. Right? And that's what right. we've already seen in, in Genesis. That's what God acknowledges and as we're going to see after this conversation, God still acknowledges that issue is there. And, you know, in those movies, Thanos, this villain, he doesn't really think at all about, you know, people's hearts and why there are shortages. It's just for him, it's a matter of resources. But yeah, I, I totally agree that it, it's bigger than that. Uh, there are even in our own country where there's not war, right? There are right. kids that are starving exactly. and yet there's more than enough. I mean, the amount of food that gets thrown away every single day. Is, right. is shameful. Right. Well, and I used to be a public school teacher and, you know, I saw the um, the clunkiness, so to speak, of the system of kids that were on free lunch, reduced lunch and kids that and the problems that, that got set up with that when kids wouldn't have their paperwork in mm. because they were dependent on parents getting paperwork in. Well, now a lot of districts uh, across the country, are, and some have already gone this way, are proposing just free lunch for everybody. Mm -hmm. If you're a kid in our school, let's just have free lunch. Take away the stigma of filling out the paperwork. Take the, the responsibility you know, off the kids to make sure their parents get things filled out. And yet you see opposition to that. Yeah. You see opposition to... Uh, something as simple as let's feed our school children. Yeah. You know, you're right. Even in our country where we're not facing war. Yeah. So, you know, thinking more broadly about this, what does it look like to have a more sustainable relationship with God's creation? Interestingly, I have a, a, another book coming out next year and I wrote uh, an entire chapter on mm -hmm. that. So um, I, I'd love to talk about that. It seems like we are okay with scriptures that talk about humans being the stewards of God's creation, that uh, but somehow that that the that creation is meant for man, that mm. God made this beautiful world and we were to take it and use it and, and toil and till it all. But somehow we've divorced that task of being a steward from a more sustainable relation, a, a long-term uh, care of the earth. And so we develop this idea that the earth is for human consumption. It's just like a styrofoam cup that you mm. use it and then just, you know, toss it away when you're done with it. And it gets really bound up with your theology, especially your theology of end times. You know, there are some uh, people that, you know, we sing this in some of our churches. This world is not my home. I'm just a passing through. And if you're just a passing through, you know, 
do you care about long-term impact of global warming on the planet? Uh, do you care about uh, finding uh, non-fossil fuel options that are better for our planet? Or if you think it's just all going to burn up in the end, do you not care? Yeah, I'm, and I've heard I've heard those sermons not at my church, and you know I'm uh, in charge of worship, and we don't really sing that particular song, <laughs> which is one of the nice things about getting to choose that. But yeah, because of, it's setting up this escapist mentality, and uh, yeah, right. like well, I go said, to my parents' church and you'll hear it. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm sure. I know there's plenty that do. Yeah. But, you know, I love what Catherine Hayhoe has to say about uh, creation care and climate care. She's a, um, a world-renowned climate scientist. She's also a very committed Christian. And I like when she talks about um, global climate care, global warming, the warming of our climate being a threat multiplier, hmm. meaning that the people on our planet that are at the most risk anyway receive the most damage from climate change so if you already are a substance farmer living somewhere and you just are hand to mouth every day and you have increased floodings and typhoons and hurricanes because of global warming it's going to be those poor farmers that are going to be impacted the most uh, it's going to be the poor that are going to be most impacted by drought. It's going to be the poor that are living in big cities choked with, with smog that um, are going to have the most um, health issues, lung issues, breathing issues. Just in our recent COVID pandemic, it was the poor that were not able to work from home or were able to socially distance that were most affected by COVID deaths and illness. And so anytime there is some kind of a, of a threat, it's going to be mostly felt by the least among us. Hmm. And so if we could just move forward and see creation care as a way to love our neighbor as ourselves. Creation care as a way to, as Jesus said, look after the least of these, because when we don't take care of our planet, the first ones to suffer are those in poverty, those living at the edge of starvation. Those are the ones that are impacted first before anyone else. How, But the ones that are causing most of the impact are those of us who are not impacted the first. Yeah, so it's all part of, it's part of creation, right? Going back to Genesis, God created mm -hmm. all of it, humans yep. and animals and all of it, and declared it good and gives us responsibility. And we seem to really be shirking on that responsibility. Uh, so I appreciate that that insight. Um, as we're wrapping up this conversation, uh, say a little more about the book that's coming out, if you can, or is that still a secret? Well, no, it's not. We um, we just uh, settled on a title. Uh, it's called The God of Monkey Science, uh, People of Faith in a Modern Scientific World. And it should be out next uh, next fall, next summer, next fall. It right. will be coming out. And it's a book where I look a little deeper into uh, evangelical and Christian denial of science in general and how our denial of 
evolution science and our insistence on literal readings of the creation story have segued into all sorts of other science denial in our modern world, which we see in creation care. We see in the reaction of too many Christians during the pandemic. And so that's what that, I'm really excited about that book because it's a look, a broader picture at uh, Christian science denial. Wow, that sounds great. I'll, I'm definitely looking forward to that. And so listeners, you. if you're interested, put that on your on your list. Uh, and meanwhile, you can check out her book from last year, Baby Dinosaurs on the Ark, The Bible and Modern Science and the Trouble of Making It All Fit. All right. Well, I'm going to have you back in just a little bit for our pop culture consolations and desolations. But for now, we're going to get back to the story of Thanos and the flood story and conclusions from that. Hey everyone, it's just me again. I hope you appreciated that conversation. I know I learned a lot and hopefully you have a new perspective on what we do with the flood story from a scientific perspective. Now, we also talked about whether or not Thanos' plan would have worked. So let's get back to his story and see where it all goes and see what is the conclusion of Thanos' story. As I mentioned in Infinity War, he wins. He gets what he wants. He gets the power to snap and kill half of sentient life. And we see half of the heroes and plenty of other people turn into dust. I mean, it's it's a pretty downer ending. And so we're seeing the immediate chaos this creates. There are planes that are falling out of the sky, presumably because their pilots have disappeared. We hear later about revolutions that are happening on other planets. Right, There is chaos across the universe as so many things are upset. And we get a little bit of exploration of, of some of these problems that are caused during what characters will later refer to as the blip. Uh, now, I always felt like it should be called the snapture, but oh well. Right, so you get the movie Endgame, where you're seeing some, where there's memorials. There are people that are mourning their loved ones five years later. Again, this is a bit of a spoiler, but the Avengers are able to undo what Thanos does and bring people back. But even that we see in movies like Spider-Man Far From Home or the show Falcon and the Winter Soldier, there's a lot of complications that come with that too, right? People have to be relocated. People have to deal with the fact that they didn't exist for five years. It makes a lot of chaos. It's not just a simple solution that, that addresses the problems of sustainability. I mean, if this really happened, how would it affect our institutions? How would it affect our supply chain to suddenly lose a random half of our population. Again, there's a lot of problems in this approach that Thanos just kind of wants to ignore. But as you, as you see at the end of Infinity War, he feels at peace, right? He basically gets to retire because this he considered to be his life's work and he's done it. I think it's important though to recognize that he has no real clue whether his plan is ultimately going to be successful. Right? He's just kind of taking it on faith that this is a solution that will fix everything because he's done smaller versions of it on other planets. That Yeah, this, this is all good. I can rest easy. He regrets some of the personal losses that he sustained through it, but ultimately he feels like, nope, this was, this was the right move, and now I'm at peace. He gets to retire. In fact, it's almost like he goes to rest and enjoy his work like God on the seventh day of creation. But I don't think that Thanos has earned the rest the way that, that the Lord does 
after creating everything. Like I said, the Avengers eventually reverse what he does and bring people back, but does anyone really learn anything? Does anything about society really change? From what we've seen, for the most part, things pretty much go back to the way that they were before. Right? There's some complications that have to be dealt with, but the way that people think about sustainability or any of the, the main concerns that Thanos has, nobody learned anything about that. And as we kind of talked about earlier in the science segment, even if they hadn't done that, it may not have solved the problem that he was trying to address in the first place. So I think it's fair to say that whether there was some point to what Thanos was trying to do, the way he went about it was not going to achieve what he wanted. That there should have been a better way for him to address the serious problem of overpopulation and hunger. But this isn't it. He doesn't learn anything and nobody else learns anything. We're just you know, happy that everyone was able to come back at the end of the second movie. So is there a better conclusion in the story in Genesis? I think so. Now, it starts in chapter 8, where Yahweh remembers Noah, and that's not, you know, like, oh, I left the water on, I better go turn that off. It's in the Hebrew mindset, remembrance is, is something more than just, you know, mental coming to mind. It's, it's involving a decision to act. And so this is a powerful turning point when God remembers. Because from this point on, Yahweh resolves to act differently towards humanity. It says in chapter 8, Noah comes out of the ark and makes a sacrifice. It says, When Yahweh smelled the pleasing odor, Yahweh said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of humans. For the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth. Nor will I ever again destroy every living creature as I've done. Now, like I mentioned earlier, it's part of this is him smelling Noah's sacrifice, which is reminiscent of other ancient Near Eastern flood stories. And it's anthropomorphism, right? Yahweh has a nose, I guess, to smell this. And also, I, I just I always feel kind of bad for the animals that made it for that whole time on the ark, and then they get out and they get to be the sacrifices. Like, oh, you're so close. Sorry, guys. But what's important here is that God resolves to never destroy the earth or creatures again. Even though, and I, th- I think this is so important, even though God acknowledges that our hearts have not changed. That inclination towards evil is still there. It's like acknowledging, well, yeah, cutting branches off of a rotten tree won't help if the problem is in the trunk or in the roots. You have to, in that case, literally address the root problem. And so it's the same for us. Wiping people out is not going to change things if the problem is the heart that exists in all people. So what I think you're seeing here, in one sense, is that God has a change of heart. Now, that, that's kind of not the way that we often think about God. Again, you can chalk that up to anthropomorphism. I've had to repeat saying that word a lot. There's a lot of edited mispronunciations of that word, if you're not hearing. Or it could be God interacting with humanity, and so God is affected by what we do. I don't think that that is a bad way to think about God. I think that's actually a more positive way to think about God, is God being willing to, to learn from what happens. And so we see here Yahweh makes a really one-sided covenant with Noah and with, with everyone, right? I establish my covenant with you in chapter 9, he says, that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of a flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. 
Now, some might read that as, okay, well, I won't destroy you again with a flood. You know, I can destroy you some other way if I feel like it, if you step out of line again. But I think that reading really ruins the flow of, of the story. And what we heard back in chapter 8 is it, it was kind of a more, more broad, general, I won't destroy humans. I won't curse the ground because of them. I won't kill all the living creatures again. You know, we see this illustrated in Genesis as God hanging the bow in the clouds, right? What we you know, call the rainbow. It, it's the idea of Yahweh hanging up his weapon, right? That's the kind of bow that we're talking about here. That's, again, you look at the shape of a rainbow and you understand that that's why they would think of it that way. Now, we heard earlier some scientific reasons why it is probably best to not think of the flood story as a historical, literal event. And so what I want to do now is to dive into some theological reasons why we shouldn't believe that God caused worldwide genocide. Now, we're talking some about you know, whether or not God changes, whether or not God is affected by humanity and creation. So maybe a helpful distinction here is between God's nature changing and God's actions changing. Because I think it's actually good theology to say that God will change what God does based on what we do. If this really is some sort of partnership, if we have any free will at all, it kind of has to be that way. On the other hand, I think we should believe that God's nature is unchanging. And so that means that if God is love, as we hear in 1 John, God has always been love. Right? We said earlier that it's heresy to say that God later on decided to be loving. God has always been the way that we understand God to be as revealed in Christ. If Christ most fully reveals God, God has always been Christ-like. This is what we see in the New Testament. It's, it's very clear, as we see at the beginning of the book of Hebrews. Long ago, God spoke to our ancestors in many and various ways by the prophets, like in the book of Genesis. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by a son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. He is the reflection of God's glory and the exact imprint of God's very being. And he sustains all things by his powerful word. So Genesis is still valuable. It's a way that God spoke to our ancestors. But we can also say that Genesis doesn't fully grasp God's character as seen in Christ. Right? So this is not Marcionism, right? a different bad God in the Old Testament. This is the one triune God seen as revealed through interactions with humans over time, but seen most clearly in Christ. This is what we believe as Christians, that Christ shows us what God is truly like more than anything else, sometimes even more than the Bible. Now, that's a pretty bold statement, and I know the question a lot of people are thinking is, well, doesn't this just make the Bible untrustworthy? Well, the question I would put to you is, which matters more? Protecting certain interpretations of the Bible and how it works, or protecting the character of God? Because you can't have both. Despite many attempts, I would say those don't hold water, especially for people that are skeptical. And so you have to make a choice. And if you choose your interpretation of the Bible, if you make that first, You've made the Bible an idol. 
but it's not really the Bible. It's your idea of what the Bible is and how you think it's supposed to work. Why not let the Bible be what it is and figure out who God is as revealed in Christ? Now, Christ and Scripture are not opposed to each other. I'm not trying to set it up in that way. They, they inform each other. We do hear Christ coming through the Gospels. And also, Christ is the one that teaches us how to understand our Bibles. That's the side of it that I think we need to reflect on a little more. And so we also want to ask, okay, so if God allows these portraits to stand in Scripture that don't reflect a Christ-like version of God, well, what is God doing? Why would God allow that? One argument is that God allows humans to inflict violence on the divine character, right? which points to what God ultimately does with the cross. God is like a missionary, challenging cultural assumptions as much as possible, but not all at once. Otherwise, people wouldn't listen. Right? So if violence is the problem that we're dealing with, God couldn't just come in and just immediately advocate for nonviolence, as I would say God does through Christ. God has to work towards that slowly. The author Greg Boyd talks about this. He says, God has always revealed God's true character and will as much as possible while stooping to accommodate the fallen and culturally conditioned state of his people as much as necessary. So that's a wordy way of saying that God is always showing as much of who God is as we could understand. But God is coming to us where we're at, meeting us where we are, because that's what love does. Or we can go even further back to a church father named Gregory of Nazianzus, who says, God beguiles his people into the gospel by gradual changes. Right? We're all a work in progress, and so it takes us time to really understand who God is. I think that's still true today. And so, Scripture is us witnessing that happening over time. From the beginning, God has stooped down to our level, humbling God's self, condescending to show as much of the divine character as we could comprehend. Why? Love meets people where they are. And again, Christ is our center for everything about how we understand God, and that's what God does in Christ. That is God coming into our midst, literally coming down to our level so that we can better understand the love of God. Maybe the flood story is less about God realizing that wiping people out doesn't solve the problem of violence. Maybe it's more about us realizing that that's not how God would solve the problem of violence. God, we believe in Christ, meets violence and corruption and injustice not with a flood, but with a cross. It was true then, it's true now, that will always be true. And so that can lead us to a positive interpretation and reading of the flood story. Thanos is still a supervillain, but God is not. There is no Old Testament God. There is just the God revealed through Christ. Thanos was not really right. Even if you sometimes feel like, yeah, humanity's had a good run, but I think we're, we're about finished. Wiping out any number of people will not help if the human heart remains the same, whether we're talking about violence or not sharing our food. What Thanos never realizes, but I think God does, is that... We need something deeper. There needs to be a deeper change than just how many people are on the planet. Ultimately, what we need is a new heart, and that's what God provides. 
We hear this in the prophets. So Ezekiel 36 tells us, God says, I will sprinkle clean water upon you. I don't know if that's an intentional flood reference or not. And you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from your idols. I will cleanse you. A new heart I will give you and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove from your body the heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. And in Jeremiah 31, we hear this promise that this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says Yahweh. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No longer shall they teach one another or say to each other, Know Yahweh, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, says Yahweh. For I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. See, these prophets are looking forward to a day, a day that I think we should believe has come true in Christ when divine knowledge is internal. It's no longer something that is limited to an in-group, but it comes wherever the Spirit of God moves. Another important lesson I think we need to learn from the flood story is that creation is not just about us. Humanity exists for the sake of creation. If you go back to the creation accounts, that's what God says. We were created to serve and protect the rest of creation, not to use it for our own ends. And what we see in the flood story is an important warning that God won't ignore if we just use it for our own sake, forever. All the evidence says that we are corrupting the earth again. We shouldn't assume that we'll somehow be safe from our own consequences. So in that way, the flood story is still a warning. Instead, how can we share God's grief and find a way toward healing and a sustainable future? The biggest question in all of this is, who do you think God is? Is it someone who uses violence to solve problems or a God who knows violence is not redemptive? Is it a God who only cares about humans, but will kill us if we step out of line? Or is it a God who cares about all creation and will take steps to call us back to our destiny? Is God a supervillain who rules through fear with infinite power? Or is God a creator who persuades and draws, and influences us with love by laying down that power. If your God is more like Thanos, let that God die. It was kind of going back to our Thor episodes, but if that's what your God is like, kill him like Gore the God Butcher. And let that false, violent God die so that a more Christ-like God can be resurrected in their place. Because I'm a Christian, I believe that God is love and that God is light. And in God, there is no darkness. And so our task as Christians is to wrestle with the passages that we find in Scripture that present a dark version of God and see the light in them. I believe that light is there. I believe that God is who Christ says God is. And I hope you will too. All right, well, as we're wrapping up the show, we want to do one of our favorite segments, which is our pop culture consolations and desolations. And uh, Janet is back with us. It's where we share something from pop culture that's giving life and maybe something that's not giving life. So, Janet, what's something that uh, you've enjoyed, something you would recommend in, in the pop culture world recently? I am loving the Andor series. On, I think it's Disney. Yeah, Disney, Disney Plus. Plus. 
Mm-hmm. I am loving the Andor series. I've watched all of them from the Baby Yoda on through. <laughs> and I actually, Star Wars was the first pop cultural thing that I recall really, you know, getting into. And I really like this Andor series. It, re- it, it reminds me of why I like the original first three Star Wars movies with the storytelling, the not so much emphasis on all the creatures and stuff rolling up real good. Mm-hmm. But, you know, some of that, but the, the, it's a lot of it's a lot grittier. You get that feeling of, um, you know, the, that pre-rebel alliance, the, the pre powerful empire and i just love the backstory there and so i really look forward to those episodes that's that's my big pop culture positive for this week yeah great yeah I've, i haven't seen all the episodes yet but i've been enjoying it too it's it's a slightly different take but um right. yeah looking at some different sides of of that world that galaxy far yeah. far away uh well my consolation i've got a couple this week one is a show called the rehearsal on uh it's on hbo max uh it's Created by Nathan Fielder. It's a really weird show. The concept is he's creating this opportunity for people to rehearse real life events. And so, like the first episode, it's it's this guy who's got to confess something to a friend. And so he like builds this whole set that's recreating the bar where the conversation is gonna happen. He hires actors to to recreate, to rehearse all of this. So it's it's weird. And then like it keeps going and it gets weirder as you go on, and it's this whole plot that takes over of like raising this pretend family it's just really really interesting uh so i i guess i'd recommend it it's probably not going to be for everybody but that's the rehearsal with nathan fielder isn't he the guy that did nathan for you the show before he did nathan for you yes oh yeah which is also a little bit of a weird show i mean he's kind of a weird guy but but you you couldn't look away you just kind of (laughs) watch that's a good good way to put it and then my my other recommend, recommendation this week is an album called I Walked With You A Ways by a band called Planes. This is a side project from Katie Crutchfield and Jess Williamson. Uh, Katie Crutchfield is in uh, Waxahachie is what she usually records under. But it's kind of just like a throwback to 90s country, which I'm not the biggest country fan, but I like it when it's good. And, and this is, I think, a good example of that. Uh, they even have a song called Abilene. Uh, so, you know, got a little connection there. So uh, we'll play a little bit here so our listeners can hear it. This is Abilene by Planes. Grind on the highway with my windows down. How to stay there forever till death do us part. Texas in my rear view, planes in my heart. Couldn't hold it together. Now, my desolation this week is really, it's just Kanye. Kanye West is, I mean, he's been problematic for uh, most of his career, but he's definitely uh, really gone off the rails now saying some racist things, some anti-Semitic things, um, spreading lies about uh, George Floyd's death. I've always had kind of a love-hate relationship with Kanye. He has made some amazing music, but he also doesn't seem to be making the best music anymore. And he kind of just needs to go away um, at this point. Just, I know he has mental health issues, but it's really no excuse for some of the things that he's saying. So that's just been the desolation to see someone who does have a lot of talent that is um, really saying some horrible things now. Janet, did you have any desolations this week? Anything that you're not enjoying? 
you know, my, my husband and daughter are big pop culture fans of all the dragon shows and those just never clicked with me. So I have to go hide and <laughs> hide <laughs> in my office and find something. I'm, I'm more of a dystopia fan than a um, fantasy fan, which I don't know if that makes me any better or worse than a dinosaur fan. But, I mean, a, not a, a dragon fan. Yeah, yeah, you would think so, dragons and dinosaurs kind of overlap. Yeah, but. I'm like, let's just go with dinosaurs. If we're going to have big reptiles, let's, why don't we have mother of dinosaurs? Why does it have to be dragons? Yeah, and so, yeah. yeah, I was watching House of the Dragon last night, and my wife just had to leave the room because like, a, the political drama is just too much, which, again, I get. But we will actually, that's going to be our next episode is talking about House of the Dragon and uh, the religion and the politics and how those get mixed up in that world. So stay tuned for that one. All right. Well, uh, thanks for being with us again, Janet. I really appreciate your insights and uh, look forward to reading that next book that's coming out next year. Thank you. It was fun. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll talk again another time, hopefully. Well, as we wrap up our episode today, we need to get serious for a moment. You know, we talked a lot about sustainability of the earth, but today we want to think about the sustainability of this podcast. You know, I'm not even asking for money, at least not at this point. All I ask is that you share, that you like, that you tell your friends about this podcast as a way to sustain this work. Please don't, don't grieve me to my heart. Don't make me sorry that I have created Pop Culture Pastor. Like, subscribe, and share with your friends so that this good work can continue. Well, as always, Pop Culture Pastor is written and produced by me. Big special thanks to our guest, Janet Kellogg-Ray. You can check out her book, Baby Dinosaurs on the Ark. Our theme music is Be Thou My Vision from the 8-Bit Hymnal by Mr. Tyler Larson. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at Pop Culture Pastor for more content. You are now dismissed. Go in peace.